Sometimes it can feel like we're living in Groundhog Day, except instead of Bill Murray waking up to I got you babe every morning, we're living in an era of cyclical and repetitive moral panics about asylum seekers coming to our shores to game the system, motivated apparently by our generous benefit system and, I don't know, quality daytime TV. And no matter what you do to try and push back against this stuff, like talk about the fact that three quarters of asylum applications are successfully granted or the awful conditions they're forced to live in when they get here, or the fact that many of them come from countries we literally invaded, pundits, the commentariat, journalists, they go, ah, you're falling into the rights clever trap because they're with the public, you're siding with illegal immigrants. Mainstream politics and political media are incapable of having a serious and fact-based and humane conversation about immigration. And for me, the final straw came last week when Andrew Marr said this on LBC. In the old days, the left didn't much like talking about immigration. Immigration was for right-wingers and closet racists and xenophobes. Well, how times change... It's like he's completely forgotten about the Blair years or the legislation passed by Harold Wilson and Clement Attlee. I mean, these people have the memories of concussed goldfish and yet we trust them to lead the public conversation on asylum seeking and immigration. So how did we get to the point where the public conversation about immigration is solely about the threat posed to our sovereignty and the need for more crackdowns? To talk me through it, I'm joined by Maya Goodfellow, the author of Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats and a Literal Expert in the Field. A different stupid journalism story was the other day, um, a producer for a show where the name rhymes with Schmidt morning, Schmitten, um, rang me up and she was like, okay, we're doing this story and it's about should there be more economic migrants? And I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by economic migrant? And what she meant was Albanians, mm. but she didn't want to say Albanians so she said economic migrant and I was like well everyone's kind of an economic migrant like my my grandma was an economic migrant like somebody who's come from the EU is an economic migrant someone who's come from Australia to work in like the walkabout is an economic migrant yeah. like just if what you mean is Albanians just say the word yeah, yeah. but they can't because they're like well that's xenophobic and racist but the euphemisms are fine <laughs> Yeah, and what's actually really interesting about that term, economic migrant, I've been doing some research around it, and you really see it come into usage from like the 80s. So like when asylum mm. starts becoming increasingly like a massive issue, and there's, it's used in loads of different ways, this, this idea of economic migrant, but you do find it's never applied to like the financiers coming <laughs> from France. So it, there's like a very specific sort of racialized undertone to it that really lets people get away with being like, well, the economic migrants, they just come for their own sort of gain, and we can't be trusted, totally ignoring the fact that so much of our economy is basically cheap migrant labour, like people coming from other countries to prop up like our care service. And that's so erased from that conversation. Because also, like, it, it, economic migrant doesn't mean someone who comes here for work, because that could be anybody. It means someone who purports to be in need, but actually what they really want is money. And it's kind of this quite neutral-sounding phrase mm. which actually is just loaded mm. with contempt and derogatory meaning and the thing that I really hate is that there's this cowardice that operates in the media which is if you use these words of kind of plausibly deniable euphemisms it means that you're absolved of any mm. nasty or racist or prejudicial content and in a way I'd be like just 
be racist because then we Same can operate thing. on that level of understanding that that's what you mean. Yeah, I mean, you find that so many people use that term economic migrant as well. Like it's it's really, there's now sort of a resistance to this in like the academic literature, but it's something that is really accepted is like, oh yes, people move for economic gain. And it's like, you do know that people move for loads of different reasons. And one might be because, one reason might be because where they're living, there's not very many job opportunities. They know English. They're going to try and come to England because they've heard there might be decent jobs. But that's not never the only thing that is motivating people. There's always more to human beings than just, I'm going to make this economic calculation and therefore <laughs> change my whole life on the basis of that. It's so many things feed into why people move. But it's also like loads of people move because there's more economic opportunities. People do that within countries yeah. as well you know that's, i mean i grew up in newcastle <laughs> i mean i don't want to say but <laughs> you sound like my partner who's like i'm an economic migrant because i came from barnsley and i was yeah. like oh fucking northerners coming in and taking our jobs um but it's like the difference between well if you happen to be from a deprived area get on your bike and yeah. look for a new job yeah. but if you do that across national borders or oh, very bad shouldn't do yeah. that yeah part of the asylum seeking hordes yeah, and can't be trusted. Like you say, mm. like, it's really the idea that it's someone who's coming to game the system. And it's like, do you know that how bad the British asylum system is? Like, no one's going to go out of their way to come here to try to pretend to be an asylum seeker to live off of, like, less than £40 a week before their claim is processed. Like, that is not... No one is going to do that. Like, we, are, we have a really hostile system, and that is totally overlooked in all of the debate on this like there was um you know just some like right-wing account that was acting me about asylum seekers and it was like a map where it had like a country which i think it was was turkey because he didn't know where syria was which said war um and then like loads of european countries like no war no war no war and then the uk which said benefits on it and it was like <sighs> does it make sense yet and i was like it's been like 20 years yeah. since asylum seekers could claim means-tested benefits. Like, I just, does no one, I just look, I was looking before I came here at the sort of new labours, like, sort of all the asylum laws that they passed, all the immigration laws they had. I think it was like 1999, 2002, 2004, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009. Oh yeah, they were so soft on asylum seekers mm. and people coming to, to like work in Britain as migrants. Like, that is... It's so categorically <laughs> untrue. They did so much bad stuff. So much bad stuff. I wanna I wanna get on to like the concussed goldfish memory of the media in a second. But I thought maybe a place that we could start is literally everybody in this country has immigration somewhere in their background. It's just a case of whether you know about it or not. So maybe could you tell me a bit about how immigration has played into your own family history? Yeah, so my my mum was actually born in Uganda, so she was sort of part of the Ugandan Asians, as um, as, we, as we call that group. And my granddad sort of got tipped off that things were going to start going wrong <laughs> yes, um, for them uh, uh, in the factory that he worked in. So he moved to the UK. My mum and the rest of the family went back to India, um, which is where my grandparents were from. And then my mum, when she was 12 or 13, moved to the UK, grew up in Peckham, and then moved to Newcastle so it's got quite a um yeah so our, like our, our our family history is really part of that unfortunately kind of pretty Patel <laughs> story of movement um but yeah without you know without that kind of movement I wouldn't I mean I wouldn't be I wouldn't exist um and it's such a it's such a big part of British history as well the fact that my granddad could even come here is this idea that people who were born in colonies former colonies 
they were British, British citizens or subjects, right? And that, what's really interesting is there was a BBC sort of fact, a kind of fact um, website that sort of went through all the Britain's history of migration. Not long after the Windrush scandal, I don't, I don't think, they produced this. And I was sort of going through it, like interested that the BBC had done this, was sort of informing people about Britain's migration history. Um, and then I got to the, the bit around the, the 50s, 60s, mm. 70s, and it talked about, you know, Asian migrants coming from different countries uh, around the world, and not least India. And I just thought, oh, what would it take just for you to have a sentence to say, oh, these people weren't. I mean, not that immigrant migrant should be a sort of dirty word, but they were citizens and subject or subjects like th- this this is totally changes how you think about immigration if you think about it in that i mean way. like when my grandma was born she was born as a subject of the british empire which is something every time i think about it like it really cracks me out it's like she was born as a subject of this empire she came after indian independence but it's you know 53 54 and mm. um, and she was 17 um and her generation were invited to come to the UK to rebuild Britain post-war, whether that was working in the NHS or working mm-hmm. in transport or, you know, any one of these things. And, like, I was talking to somebody whose grandparents came over as part of the Windrush generation. And he was like, yeah, man, there were adverts, like, all yeah. over Jamaica being like, come to this yeah. country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is interesting about that, there's a BBC, uh, there's a BBC documentary, like, maybe like a decade ago now, that was about the nurses who came, like, exactly from, like, all over the Caribbean, other countries, and they were invited to come. And there was, oh, it always stays with me. There's one woman interviewed who said, you know, they like wanted us to come over because basically the NHS would not have survived without people coming from mm. all over from all over the world um, to work in it. Uh, they wanted us to come and work in the day, but at night when our shift was over, they just wanted us to disappear. They didn't want us to mm. be in Britain, and it, that is really. I mean, obviously there is a bit of a shift in in that history where they start the government start sending out ads to different countries saying it's too cold, don't come. Actually, now that you have the choice, <laughs> don't don't come to Britain. But there there is that period of time where they are saying to people, come here, come and work in the NHS, come and work in the in transport. But those people, when they arrived, I mean, they were under no illusions, most people, how Brit- racist Britain was going to be, um, basically felt like, you want us for our labour, but that's it. But it's kind of something which I find really hard to imagine, because I think about what it must have been like for my grandma when she was 17. She's coming over here. She didn't know anybody. She was an unaccompanied minor, we'd call her now. And she was a baby. I mean, I think about myself at 17 and I couldn't look after a cactus by myself, let alone myself and seek employment. And she was living around Caledonian Road. And whenever she'd walk um, past the tube station, there'd be like teddy boys on the corner. And you just sort of think like for that generation, I mean, there was disappointments for, for lots of them, but many of them went in with open eyes and you just kind of can't imagine yourself in that situation at all yeah I mean I, I really can't imagine and I mean me and my mum talk about it but like to be like a teen like you're going into your like teenage mm. years and to be like moved to a totally to move to a totally different country where all you experience in the British education system is like racism 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 <laughs> and like where my mum is now it's it's just like it is it's unthinkable to me like the childhood that I had in comparison to the childhood that she had mm. with all that movement and just how far too little has changed on that on that front as well like far too mm. little has changed 
I sometimes look at it and go, how come I have anxiety and you don't? Like, I was yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, really yeah. like subpar yeah. millennials yeah. who don't know where yeah. born. Um, so, so how did this interest in researching and producing academic work around migration start for you? Was it something about family history or was it something else? I mean, I, I guess... I guess it's living in Britain, <laughs> living in Britain and seeing the way that politicians and the media talk about like what is basically your family, right? And so I really started to be critical, I think, and to really engage with thinking about this when I worked for a website called Labourlist, which covers news and comment from across the labour movement. And basically I was part I was part of a team that was covering the 2015 general election when Ed Miliband, you know, controls and immigration mugs, all the all the stuff. That we know about um and I always remember going to uh Ed Miliband's speech with my boss and Ed Miliband doing a whole bit about how it was really people must speak English like it's it's necessary that people speak English and if not they should they shouldn't be welcome here or they should leave and having a conversation with my boss who didn't really thought oh you know that's a fine that's a fine uh policy why not and being like no my grandparents lived in this country and they weren't like mm. Why, how would they at that age come here? They were working so many hours a week. This idea that they then have time to learn English if there's even English lessons available, which is often not the case anyway. Like, how is that not an in incredibly racist and discriminatory policy? How is that okay? And I just became fixated on Edmund <laughs> Band and the, all the rhetoric around, around that election and realized like what is now I think more of an obvious thing to say it's something that's really come into the like at least the consciousness of like people our age I think oh I don't know anything about like I know my own family history but mm. I don't know anything about all the th all the things that have meant that we're here now mm. like how did we get to this point because I know that Ed Miliband didn't just rock up and start saying all this stuff off the cuff <laughs> like I know that there there must be something that's led up to all this and so I became really interested in what are all the policies and what's all the, what is all this political um, environment that's helped produce moments like this? And the other thing that sort of got me interested in and sort of made me realise or think about this more deeply is the more I looked into it, the more that I realised there's quite a few like popular thinkers or like popular books about the other side of the argument, let's mm. say, this sort of anti-immigration arguments. And there's just not, there wasn't tons mm. at the time making the case for the opposite. Right. And it felt like a really sort of fringe, fringe view. I think that's shifted in, in some ways. Um, and so really it came from a frustration, I think, as well as that that personal connection. I mean, I, you, you mentioned that, you know, migrants must speak English if they're here. I've always thought that there is a vast overestimation of the number of people who are here and can't speak any English at all, because... I was looking into how English as a second or other language is quantified in schools and the measure that they use is, is there another language spoken at home? So rather than that being seen as being bilingual and really cool, I mean, I'm mm. not bilingual. I just speak English badly and that's it. Um, rather than that being seen as like, oh, okay, well, amazing. Like this kid has arrived in a classroom being able to speak more than one language with some degree of proficiency. That's then seen as you know, having a special educational need mm. and it's being seen as being disadvantaged educationally. Mm. And I, so there's like one way in which like I think the, the numbers tell a kind mm. of misleading story. And I think the other one is like, you know, when you're just chatting to people and they're like, oh yeah, like, you know, I had this doctor and he couldn't speak English. And I'm like, 
I don't think that's true. Yeah. I think he just had an accent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, really. I think, I, I think there are, there are sort of two things here. You're right that this is all sort. Of, this is all overblown, and it's about hyping up this idea that there are these, you know, there are these people here who aren't assimilating, don't fit in, are sort of corrosive to British culture. This is like a really widespread uh, view, widespread argument, at least in in parts of the media historically. Uh, but I also do think. So I'm all for, you know, having, have, like, like with loads of things, have these things available, have classes available for people, if it make, so people have time, so they're not, you know, working however many hours a week, that means they can't go to English um, classes if they want. For me, it's like the punitive aspect of this, mm. like you have to pay, firstly, to do the English test. And then if you don't, if you aren't deemed to have, to be good enough, that's it. And that I, I find so deeply unfair and like it's really sending a message and I do often think oh you know like I'm I, I am like trying to learn a language at the moment and I think oh I could go to that country maybe pick it up and like mm. be there for a bit and that'll that's the thing that's going to help me and that's the kind of attitude you are able and allowed to have when you were born and grew up in Britain mm. and you have you you've sort of surrounded by people who like go and do their gap here in France or like go skiing in I'm France every year yeah, exactly and and I think who it's available to, who it's who's allowed, who isn't, it is really tells us a story about how immigration is seen in Britain. But I think is 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 really is really negative. And so I, I think even if you're gonna say this is all overblown, I think there is another point that actually this is all also deeply unfair the way that we're understanding this. So let's talk about something that's going on right now, because these last two weeks Manston Asylum Processing Centre has been in the news. The fact it's ridiculously overcrowded, mm. that there's been a huge backlog of processing people's claims, that conditions are so bad that diseases like diphtheria and scabies have been spreading amongst people there. What do you make of the news coverage of this particular story? I mean, A has been atrocious. <laughs> I, to, for me, what encapsulated all of it was in the, I think, it, so this, that story broke, I think, on a Sunday, mm. and um, either on the Monday or Tuesday, I mean, maybe the Wednesday of, of, that, of that week, I listened to World at One, they had Nigel Farage on. Mm. On what grounds? On what, I mean, I know on what grounds, but I think what has basically been, what is basically a story about government inhumanity inhumane ways that people seeking asylum are being treated in Britain that has a long, long history that it was really necessary to understanding this moment has been totally eclipsed by basically what is scaremongering about, about asylum. And so what you saw is it immediately flipped, right? Where you see this kind of overcrowding instead of talking about, I mean, there's been a bit of this, but instead of extensively talking about hostility towards asylum seekers in Britain, it has become a numbers question. And it has become a question of who is coming. So this idea that it is all people from Albania, the country is being you know, overrun with people coming from this particular part of the world where it can't possibly, there can be almost no grounds in which mm. you're going to seek asylum. So it's like a delegitimizing process. And there's, I think there's two things at least to say about this. One, the quote that always stays with me is the Stuart Hall quote, which is that as soon as you talk about numbers, it's always too many. Mm. Always too many. Right? He said that in... 1979 I think <laughs> like that that still is so incredibly true and the second thing is this idea about people coming from Albania there is always in British history a group to 
be talking about in these ways, whether it's people from Ireland, Jewish people fleeing Nazi Germany, whether it's people from India, Pakistan, Poland, Romania, now Albania. This is just, you could, I, you know, I, I could have written a story about this mm. before it happened because it's so predictable. It's so predictable that this is how it would play out. I mean, what's really interesting about Albania becoming this embodiment of the undeserving migrant is that that's exactly how it was in the early 2000s. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about the Blair Brown years in some detail, but but before we do, I just I remember that in The Sun there was a Mr. Men cartoon. And this was pretty soon after Rebecca Wade took over as editor in 2003. Mm -hmm. So it was um, a kind of revamped Mr. Men for, you know, the sad state of modern Britain. And so you had Mr. Yardy, who was a black Mr. Man who had a gun and a spliff Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's all Jamaicans, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, And you had Mr. Albanian gangster like asylum seeker who had like a gold tooth and was a pimp and like you know wanted to meet your sister or something like it feels that we're in this cycle where the exact same scare figures who were populating the political imagination 20 years ago are back again yeah yeah and I mean the I always remember I think it's someone I interviewed for the book said to me oh you know if if all the stories that incorrect and really like I mean, yeah, just incorrect. All the incorrect stories about people from coming from different parts of the world that are put on the front pages of newspapers like the Daily Mail, if then the retractions also had to be put on the front page mm. in the same size print, like we may still have the same discourse we have about immigration because I think it's very hard to dislodge, but it would really shift things because mm. there, is so, there is so much mistruth. But as well as the mistruth, there's something that you've, I think also said which is really true is that so much of this is coded mm. right and so you're just saying a nationality oh it's it, it's fine to, we're just talking about people from albania but no it's all the ideas about criminality lying people who are just out sort of for what they can get and this this idea that really you did see in the um 2000s the people from eastern europe in particular mm. were in it for them out for themselves i think there was one story in the mail or the sun Killing the queen swans. It was the sun. Yeah, it I was the sun. And the, the headline was Swan Bake. Like I just like it is like almost like they are being imagined as a, a race apart because of their inherent criminality, right? Yeah. And this idea of an inherent difference. And the media get away with it because what has happened is there has been a slight shift in who's demonized, who's talked about in these in these terms, but there's also been a shift of not talking about these things this happened really increasingly from the 70s onwards not talking about these things so explicitly in terms of racial otherness and more in terms of cultural otherness and so culture becomes kind of a a, a code for race and you really saw that during um, it's not races that are inferior it's just cultures associated with specific races exactly (laughs) and you ask these i've actually like been up against some of these the people who make these these arguments um and people like Douglas Murray and you sort of probe it and you say Tommy Robinson what do you mean by culture like what what are you what and the the more you probe the more they like they sort of cling to the things oh you know Christianity but it 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 does sort of it it crumbles a bit because the more you ask the more it becomes really hard to remain saying oh it's just cultural difference you say oh so you know people from America culturally Mm. different or culturally similar people Australia New Zealand like 
Where's the? This was like where Christianity the is such a funny one because if you then ask him about like, okay, well, loads of West African migrants <laughs> yeah. are Christian. In fact, they're more yeah, yeah. Christian than <laughs> white Protestants living here, and they're like, no, not like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, absolutely yeah. not like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, just one last thing about about the news cycle. The thing which kicked off the focus on Manston was the fact that there was a attack on Western Jet Foil Asylum Processing Center, an individual called Andy Leake threw petrol bombs at the center and then killed himself shortly afterwards. And I don't want to get into him as an individual, but do you think that there are things in the political environment which made it likely, if not inevitable, that something like that was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I always think it's very difficult before we, like, know. Like, whoever it is, there's always, like, a rush to say this is why. But I do think when we think about instances of violence like that, the political context obviously play like to different degrees with different people and different um, instances, obviously is going to play a role. Like, you can't... You, you think about the murder of Joe Cox. How can that not be related to what was called by a judge, I think, the febrile atmosphere of the, of the referendum like, and all the discourse around that? And that is something that the media and, you know, large parts of our political mm. class, they don't want to engage with because they don't want to start having to think, oh, the language that we use, the way we talk about mm. these things, does that have an impact? And, you know, it's not politically expedient for them to do so either because who cares about that? are either people they think they're not going to win the votes of or they're not trying to talk to, Mm. or people who they think, in the case of the Labour Party, the votes are in the bag and we're just not even going to bother thinking about this set of people. I mean, it's kind of this thing of of stochastic terrorism, right? Which is if you you poison the public sphere enough and you go, okay, it's this demographic of people who are coming here and they're sponging off the benefit system and they commit loads of crimes and also they're rapists and they're a danger to Mm. you and your children and also they're changing society to take away power and control from you if you genuinely believed all of these things and lots of the time it's not an individual headline it's like the accumulation of news coverage and then how you've got a far-right media ecology which takes on certain things blows out proportion adds some misinformation if you believed all of these things what wouldn't you think is morally justified yeah yeah and i and i think that i think the the key thing there is is, is, is as as you say like is the volume the volume of this kind of message and it's not just oh the moment when this happens it's the 20 years beforehand is what you grow up hearing it's the stuff that you see on tv that suggests that people are bogus asylum seekers or legitimate refugees Mm. and that those ideas are something now everyone in britain knows what's meant by that Mm. everyone knows right and what is lost is how i mean factually incorrect 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 that is factually inaccurate but also the thing that I have kept thinking with this, with with the past few weeks, which is kind of an obvious, it almost feels like insultingly obvious to say, is like we're talking about people. Like we are mm. talking about people, like who cares where they're from? Like we are talking about other people who are, have come to Britain by, by incredibly dangerous means, incredibly dangerous. Like no one does that lightly. Mm. And they are now being treated absolutely appallingly Mm. and not only are they being treated appallingly inside a detention center what is essentially a detention center they likely will have to face being treated appallingly if they have you know if they're waiting on their asylum claim even if their asylum claim is processed 
in a country where asylum is basically a dirty word and mm. immigration is basically a dirty word. And I interviewed so many people for the book who just were, I mean, they were like wanted to resist and they wanted mm. to change things. And they had so many ideas about what could change in Britain around the immigration system. Like they weren't just sort of passive victims, but they were sick and tired. Mm. They were, there was one woman who said to me, you know, I just, I just want to have a, I just want to have a life. Mm. And this country's made me feel so awful for just wanting to have a life. And that is the case for so many people who come here and then experience this kind of bile. I mean, one of the things that's really striking about how asylum has become a dirty word is that the volume of news coverage and the tenor of the political debate has meant that people look at others suffering and they react not with empathy but with disgust and revulsion and this was back in 2016 shortly after the brexit referendum and i was doing vox pops about immigration and why did people vote the way that they did and someone said well look these syrians they're coming over and they're drowning themselves and i just thought that was such a bizarre way to apportion blame mm. and a really revealing thing to say about how you feel when you're presented with you know the rare occasions where there's some sympathetic media coverage so when the Syrian toddler uh Ilan Kurdi um there was an image of him having drowned and, and his body washed up on a beach to react to that with mm. well that's his fault or his parents fault rather than how the hell did we get to a situation where a toddler is drowning at sea and I just thought what the fuck has happened to our politics that that's where we've ended up yeah and, and what happened after that as well you know there was a lot of uh hand-wringing from politicians and across Europe because you know we're talking about Britain but Europe is <laughs> like as much as people who are sort of still pining to rejoin the European Union might forget like Europe is not is terrible on uh when it comes to asylum um there was like a brief there was a, a brief shift some kind of softening of laws then it went back to normal and Alan Cody's dad said a year later like mm. what's like what's changed like my son died what has changed and the I think the the thing that to think about with this as well is not only is it that people are suffering and, you know, it is the decisions. Like the thing that to understand about this is the decisions of politicians that mean people have to make these very, very dangerous journeys. Is the 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 border policies of politicians across Europe that mean that people have to get in a very dangerous boat, an unsafe boat, across a dangerous um, sea crossing, don't have any other means to get somewhere, then have to basically be destitute in countries mm. like Britain whilst they're waiting on their claims. That's that's all politicians know that's happening. Let's not pretend they don't. But the other the other part of it, I think, is when there is sort of sympathy, there is a need for people to be the ideal victim. Mm. People are complicated and everyone should be allowed to be complicated. And this idea that we kind of turn people into these kind of one-dimensional mm. stereotypes of people who are just desperate and there's nothing else to them apart from their desperation, mm. I think is a kind of, basically a kind of liberal argument about let's, let, let's and that's why it fits in to some extent with kind of um some of the new labor politics and mm -hmm. some of the contempt like current labor politics uh is this idea of like oh we can separate out the like proper victims mm. from like all these other undesirables mm -hmm. and i think that's a obviously we live in the world where there is the refugee convention there are um states are supposed to obviously often don't uh, <laughs> abide by certain um rules relating to 
people claiming and seeking asylum. But I also think when people are moving, people are moving for a reason, many different reasons often. But we separating out sort of like the good asylum seeker from the bad migrant is a is a recipe for reproducing the very politics that we've seen Mm. over the past two decades around asylum and migration. I mean, so this is going to sound like a really basic question, I warn you. But um, borders can feel really natural. So we're an island. So the boundaries of the island nation feel like Mm. a really natural border. Mm. Or the boundary of the Himalayas in India feels like a very natural border. Um, And then you look at all the straight lines in Africa and you're like, oh, how did they (laughs) get there? Um, so, So how are borders made? And are they always related to what the natural boundaries of a nation are? Or do they reflect something else? I mean, no, is the, <laughs> is the, is the like, is the, I think the shortest answer, like what you find, I mean, so that the history of borders is also bound up as well with the history of immigration control, right? And so if you go way, way back in Britain, what you see is that controls on people's movement because they're poor, poor within mm. Britain, right? Like, so we already know that this idea that you stop some people from moving, some people from entering certain parts of a particular territory is always um, or often driven by this desire to to control who is where and for often now for So like, you're talking about like vagrancy acts and exactly. stuff which meant that poor people couldn't travel around internally. Exactly, in Britain. Britain. Yeah, and um, there is, you know, the, there's some... Bridget Anderson, who's an academic at uh, Bristol, does like lots of interesting work on this that, that charts that history and doesn't... I can't do justice to all mm-hmm. of her um, arguments, but this idea that the border is... I mean, the, the, the border has always been there, not true <laughs> like not true borders have been changing throughout history uh, they are very they're very movable there's a really good map um that shows that kind of charts over time the changing borders around the world that shows just how artificial this is there are obviously borders within countries like britain you have the hostile environment which means that people are experiencing the border when they go to the nhs when they go to the doctors the hospital um so, so when, when you're talking about there's a border within Britain, it's, so it's not a border as a distinction between one territory and another. It's a way of classifying people rather than places. Yeah, and I think that, so, you know, for a lot of people, the border is like the airport like, or the, 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 the point at which they cross. And you can, you, know, you can go around the world and you can sort of hop over the border in lots of places mm-hmm. from like one country to another. I've done that. And... Uh, that shows you really how artificial a lot of mm. that is because it's just like, oh, what is the difference between here and here? Like nothing. Um, but yes, there is a way of categorizing people that mean that some people are experiencing the border all the time. So with the hostile environment, if you want to like rent a place, you have to like, show your documentation. Lots of people have to show their documentation to prove that they are, have the right to be here or that they're British citizens. Um, that's a form of bordering what we call mm. bordering so the act of creating the border because what that does is that for people who don't have the right documentation they can't get the basic th- things they need in life and so it's kind of like that meme of like guess i'll die then yeah. <laughs> what you want people i to mean do. yeah and um the thing that strikes me most about borders when i when i've sort of looked at the way that people are talking about it, it's very difficult in the media to hold the position i do about borders which is that they are fundamentally an ill, an mm. ill in the world, um, is because we've been told, we, we live in a country where we're told all the time, the border is a thing that protects, it's a thing that filters out the unsafe people, the, mm. sa- the people we want, the people we don't. It's, it's basically trading, it's like moving around pieces on a chessboard mm. or pieces on a, what is it, risk, um, the, that board game. 
where it's like the people you want are allowed to cross the border, the people that you aren't, you know, you, mm. you, you don't want them there. And the the border is actually that, that kind of sorting mechanism. It's not, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't keep us safe. I mean, what, mm. does that, what does that even mean? Are we going to now start putting borders around different parts of the country because we don't want people coming from... I don't know, I, if I move back to Newcastle, would I not want people from Carlisle coming? Because can they be trusted mm. to use public services properly? Um, but it, it produces a lot of violence and it produces mm. a lot of pain, a lot of death, a lot of administrative stress, which mm. sounds kind of um, unimportant. But actually, to be in Britain, to stay in Britain mm. um, with the right papers is so expensive, mm. so difficult, like so complex. And I, when I was doing the research for the book, I, I interviewed loads of people about this and everyone said this, like the same thing, that it's just awful. But I also interviewed um, some immigration lawyers who were just like, mm. we don't know all the rules. It's very hard to keep up with all of this. Like we can't always make sense. It's changing around you. So the border is also this kind of, um, this web of administration mm. that you have to navigate and so it sort of seems benign but actually is the difference between you having status you not having status which for a lot of people I mean for most people is absolutely huge I mean like it's you know I've got a British passport which is kind of like the golden ticket right so if I want to like navigate this administrative web it's like I kind of like you know flash it up and there you go like the automatic doors like whoosh, like slide yeah. open and then you you realize that even that is conditional. So what happened with Shamima Begum, for instance, is, you know, she uh, was born in the UK, a British national. That's the only nationality that she herself held. She left for Syria with two other girls and she surfaced in a camp after, you know, the, the fall of, of Raqqa. And she has her citizenship stripped from her by Sajid Javid, who is also notably the first yeah. non-white home secretary in this country's history. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we now only get non-white home secretaries mm -hmm. to do the work of, yeah. of um, cracking down on immigration. But the logic that they used for stripping her of her nationality was that because she is of Bangladeshi origin, just like me, she could potentially be eligible for Bangladeshi yeah. citizenship. So she's Bangladesh's problem. Yeah. We, we don't have legally a duty of care towards her or her baby uh, who, who died in that camp. And that also means that we don't have to do the difficult work of bringing her back here and having a criminal justice system decide was she responsible for her own actions or was she groomed? You can just, because she's got heritage which points to somewhere else, yeah. she's their problem. And I was, I was talking about this on the radio uh, on LBC and there was, you know, some Tory think tanker who looked a lot like, um, uh, what's his face, Sid from Toy Story. Like it was just, it was so, it was so distracting. Um, and I was like, that could be me. Yeah. And he was like, well, no, it couldn't be you because you're not a terrorist. And I was like, well, I, anyone can be accused of anything. Yeah. And the point of having the criminal justice system is that that decides who's who. Yeah. But on, on the basis of, of my heritage, that my skin tells you that there's migration somewhere in my family history, yeah. I could have my British nationality stripped from me like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is that, you know, there's for all the talk of, oh, it's not racist to be concerned about immigration. I mean, that's wrong for a lot of different <laughs> reasons. It, it's, it is, you know, it is all very tricky to unpick because of like the very insidious way that race can work um 
But these are some of the more obvious ways. And we get told, oh, no, no, don't like, you don't, you don't have to worry. But this is like one of the obvious ways that actually race really, really is still this kind of dividing, mm. like dividing tool. And so even if you have British citizenship, that is precarious. And yes, you do have a degree of um, like privilege related mm. to that. But it's not, um, it's contingent, mm. right? It's contingent. And with the passport, the idea of the passport, there is a, there's a, a website, I think it's called something like the Global Passport Index. Yeah. And it shows you, right, depending on your passport, how easy it is for you to move around different mm. parts of the world. And that, so it's not only, and this isn't just, like with all of this, I think a lot about Britain. It's where I live, it's where I'm constantly frustrated both angry and it's like Britain is the bad boyfriend of my life it's like oh you drive me nuts I can't leave yeah I'm still here like um, maybe you'll change one day yeah so I like you know put put Britain under the uh, like under the microscope but like it's not as if these things that happen in Britain are not happening elsewhere yes in different in different ways to different degrees but when we think about an uh, activist said to me a few years ago if you could design the world in any way, mm. would this be how you would design it? <laughs> like this idea that some people, you have a certain passport, so you can get into different countries more easily. You, have, you get to pay less money for a visa or you don't have to have a visa at all. But for some places, depending on where you're from, is the country, does it have good relations with others? Is it seen as more dangerous? Is it seen as more risky? I mean, these are all, again, kind of like there's racial codes working under a lot of that. Um I don't want to, that's not the world I would design. That's not the world that I want to live in is, is this idea that because of where you're born, mm. you get to move or you don't, or you get to move around with relative ease or you don't. Like, I think that's... And it's the kind of thing where like, you could ask a Tory, a liberal, a leftist, even like someone who's like way out in the far right, should someone be judged on who they are as an individual, everyone would say yes. And then you have a border regime, which is yeah. like, ah, think again, my friend. Yeah. And that, that's, it is this, this big, big sorting mechanism mm. that I just, I think is, is, is fairly indefensible. And I think for a lot of people, because it's all, because it all is already confusing. Right? I've spent like a lot of years of my life trying to like make sense <laughs> of all of it. Um, and that it's not like I still can see it all in my mind as some like I don't have like a clear picture of all the different ways that it functions because it's changing all the time in terms of like visa requirements in terms of different paperwork you need in terms of costs that's the case around the world but I do know it's not a good way to be treating people it's not a good way to be if we care about people's humanity which is what politicians always say they do I mean, so, so let's talk a, a bit about the history of some of this so 1948 Clement Attlee introduces the British Nationality Act. Yeah. Um, what was it? What did it do? And um, what's its legacy for us now? Yeah, so the, the British Nationality Act, in many ways, put into law what was already in existence, which is that people from uh, colonies and former colonies who come to Britain, like legally come to Britain and live in Britain, and there's a number of different reasons why this happened, but part of it was to do with the fact that some of the the the, the colonies of former colonies that we will call the white mm. colonies and former colonies, so places that would be like imagined as white, majority white, places like Canada, like it was Canada in particular, but also like New Zealand, were kind of beginning to develop their own ideas about nationhood, national identity, mm. what that would look like. And Britain wanted to keep 
wanted to keep everyone close, <laughs> let's say. They're like, just because you've moved out doesn't mean you can't hang out all the time. Uh, yeah, and so that 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 really it didn't it didn't necessarily it wasn't like a massive step change in terms mm. of what people could do, but it was this kind of signal that you could move move legally and you had the right to move legally. It's probably worth saying in terms of like the prehistory to mm. the that Nationality Act is Britain had already sort of started putting in place some of the stuff that is the basis for what we think of now as British immigration law. So like right at the start of the 1900s, they did a lot of bad stuff. And really it was related, initially related to Jewish people fleeing mm. pogroms from Russia, Poland, from the 1880s around then onwards. And like 1905, 1914, 1919 was also in part to do with like um, what's called Germanophobia, so like mm. hostility towards German people um, because of World War One. The government started introducing all these rules and laws about if if you could move what you had to have if you were going to move here for largely for these kinds of specific groups but they, yeah it was it mm. was it was british immigration law and so that was it called the alien act was it on the yeah the, 90, the 1905 um aliens act and i think that act i might be wrong in saying this i mean like i say there's mm. there's a lot to remember um one of those acts you had to have a specific amount of money in a mm. in a foreign bank account in order to be able to i think actually it must have been the 1914 or 1919, or maybe just after that, because it was related to Jewish people who were mm. leaving, who, who were trying to flee Nazism. Um, ha- you had to have a specific amount of money in a foreign bank account. But for those people, it was often really difficult to have mm. a foreign bank account because they weren't allowed to. Um, and I think that, that in, in that law... It was also that if you didn't have that, if you had like the right skills, mm. it might be okay. So that, like you, you see in a lot of that language, a lot of the, even if it wasn't written into the laws themselves, a lot of the debate around mm. those laws leading up to them during and after was politicians saying, okay, we want people who maybe are going to work well, mm. not going to undercut British wages. Mm. So it was like a big thing in the trade union movement as well also doesn't have a very good history on this, unfortunately. Um, oh, my mum could tell you some stories about oh, like, beefing with the trade yeah. union movement on I mean, race and immigration. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> and also, oh, we people who are... We don't... We're worried about people who are culturally different from us. Mm. So, like, one of the things around people who are Jewish was like, oh, there are people who are Jewish who've assimilated and they're okay, but people coming from places like Russia, mm. maybe you're going to be... They're maybe poorer, maybe you're going to be too culturally distinct. And so, like, loads of the stuff that we see today... There's echoes of that. And also in this the history. way in which you craft policy in ways which encode the racial outcome you want, but you don't have to say it. So if you go, okay, well, you have to have a foreign bank account, which is something which is specifically difficult for Jewish people because of the anti Semitic discrimination they experience, it means that you create a barrier for Jewish people coming to this country without having ever to say, it's because we're anti-Semitic as well. Yeah, and that's why it can be really difficult to talk about these laws as well because you often get pulled up and like, well, it didn't say this. It didn't, that's not That's not quite what the government were doing, but you can read a lot of this stuff in the outcomes. And I mean, post-1948, uh, there was a lot of, I mean, there was initially loads of covert stuff that was done by Tory and Labour governments around like, oh, we're going to try and jack up the prices of... Um, uh, of boat tickets so that if Mm. people want to come it's like more difficult for them to do so that's when they do things like put out ads being like don't come it's too cold (laughs) (laughs) um 
but really, there's this, there's quite there's t- like a lot of tussle She's around. Like, can you imagine saying like it's too cold? It's like you know, my my grandma was born in Chittagong under the British Empire, right? She was a kid when the Bengal famine happened. Um, you know, India was left with a far lower GDP after being colonized than it did before colonization. So you you, you colonize a country, you <laughs> fuck it up royally. Um, you limit the kinds of economic opportunity which are possible immediately following independence. Then you go, don't seek a better life. You might be put off by the cold. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah. sure, but there's fewer famines where you yeah. are. So we're going to take the gamble on like cold weather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it just it is like sometimes you do have to go back and like triple check the thing <laughs> because you're like, is this what like what are you what are you all thinking and you do know what they're thinking but you just like it I there's been multiple times over the past few years where I'm I'm like saying something and I'm like afterwards I'm like I really must have to go and check that that's Mm. accurate because is it because it's mad and you stop yourself because it is even though you know you know how hostile this country has been around migration you know how wrong-headed it all is you know how racist it all is but still you're like really like, why, you, why, really? were you, like, I can believe you were that racist, but can, were you really that stupid? <laughs> yeah. And the answer is always yes. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I wonder what you think about this, because I was thinking about that kind of, you know, post-1948 um, environment when it comes to immigration. Mm. And if one of the big milestones that we think of in British history is Enoch Powell giving the mm. infamous mm. Rivers of Blood speech. And even... The format of that speech is something I find really interesting. So this this happens in 1968 and he's giving a speech to a local conservative association in Wolverhampton. And what he does is that he says, "Um, I was talking to one of my constituents Mm. and we exchanged some pleasantries about the weather. And then suddenly he turned around and was like, in 15 years time, the black man shall have the whip hand over the white. And like the Roman, I see the river Tiber foaming with, with much blood. So basically paints this vision of apocalypse being driven by the fact that immigration puts racial others into contact with white people and Mm. saying that what this is going to do is destroy the fabric that upholds society and everything's going to be fucked um he's forced to step down not long afterwards though quite notably one of his defenders was margaret thatcher um and i wonder if you agree with me which is that even though enoch powell the politician lost powellism won so this connection being drawn between race nationality immigration the racial composition of britain the way he drew those imaginative connections has endured to this day and in some ways he's the most influential politician this country has ever had when it comes to immigration yes yes (laughs) i mean that is that is what you see when you look at the history around this you see he's he is ostracized he is sort of treated as this kind of pariah but so many of his ideas were already like you know they were already in the mix you have before he makes that speech immigration acts that are that are about race right even if again they're not it's not said explicitly the 1968 um commonwealth immigrants act which was the labor government Mm -hmm very racist and like even so so what did it do so so basically this was to do with people kenyan asians Mm -hmm. people like wanting to leave kenya because of uh policies within kenya and what the labor government essentially did was make it very very difficult for these people who had been as we've talked about uh 
citizens of Britain, really difficult for them to come here. And so at the time, even even some of the newspapers that you wouldn't, I think that I think the Times said, "Oh, this is calm down." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the like the racism in this is like it was agreed, right? So it was not written into the act. You can't go to the act and see that. But the outcome was it was about these people who were Asian. We don't want to to be swamped by by people um coming to Britain and so already you see the 1962 act which was before that was again about is widely agreed that that was about making it they want Britain Britain still wanted people from like around the world to come here but in particular they wanted to keep the door open people from like Canada mm. like the, the countries that um I've mentioned before so they wanted to make it more difficult for people who they considered racially other to come here um, and so, they, yeah, you get Enoch Powell saying all this really, really racist stuff, giving this incredibly racist speech, really um, playing a role, like we shouldn't underestimate, playing a role in amplifying these kinds of racist messages. Mm. But to think that he was something totally on the fringe is to really ignore the laws that mm. were produced and the, the things that were being said at the time by other politicians and the... The thing that I think is most is interesting about the Enoch Powell, um, some of the Enoch Powell stuff is is the way he talks about this, of, of like the working class concerns around yeah. immigration, right? And that is something we... And he was like as elite as it gets. Nigel Farage. Yeah, I mean, like really you 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 do see a lot of these politicians sort of ventriloquizing mm. working class, like white working class people as... Because um, there are no brown working class people. There are only white working exactly. class people. Exactly, I mean for uh the purposes of their arguments it's like let's focus on this one specific group which is the only group um that matters and it does a a obscures what is a way more complicated history around multiracial sort of resistance to some of the to some of these laws to some of this racism and it also simplifies i think what is when there are uh people in working class communities who have these views as if they're the only people who do and it's not like the middle classes or mm. the upper classes who also have this kind of th- these kinds of thoughts about um immigration or motivated by immigration and race in this kind of way um and you do see this kind of shift that Enoch Powell is is part of which is he was being he was ex- explicitly racist but you see this kind of move towards talking about culture instead and so mm. there's this this um group of people who are sort of a loose they're not a formalized group um who we can think of as called the new right mm. who really start talking about oh oh you know we don't want people from x y or z part of the world coming because they are culturally distinct and mm. so you do see that kind of shift in like the language that is used but not the aims of the policies mm. and not the, the the political atmosphere and certainly not the ways that people are treated and i think one of the things that can be easy to to lose sight of when we're thinking about immigration and asylum throughout all of this this British history around this is that it's not just like these policies were done and that mm. was bad and some people couldn't couldn't come. I mean, that is all bad, but it's also that when people are here, there's a material impact. Mm. Not only do they have to live in a country where they're constantly being told, get out or we don't want you here or you're not pulling your way, they, there's also material um, outcomes to a lot of these policies. So like around asylum, we see people can't live off the money that they're given and so there is a it's not just oh there is racism and it's bad that people are being racist mm. it's that this all has 
outcomes that impact people's lives for the worse. I mean, so let, let's talk a bit about the asylum issue and also the conditions being made much more restrictive and difficult for asylum seekers because that was such a huge theme of the Blair Brown years, mm. which is why I find it really funny when like you kind of have like the Remain Brigade. And look, I voted Remain too. And the reason why I did is because I thought that it would be on balance better for people who were immigrants or racialized as yeah. immigrants if, if yeah. we stayed in, in the EU. Um, but the Remain Brigade look back at like, you know, ah, oh, the halcyon days of 2003 where we only invaded Iraq. Um, <laughs> but asylum was a really big thing for the Blair Premiership. Yeah, it's, it's really been forgotten. So the, the, the narrative is, right, around Brexit as well, um, the narrative is under New Labour, too many people were let into the country and that brought about an undesirable change. And there has been a natural reaction, like an inherent reaction in people to people coming in. And like, that's part of the reason that people ended up voting for Brexit. Mm. Two major problems with that. One, as you say, they were being so intensely anti-asylum almost immediately from coming into office. Mm. It's not like, I mean, not that this would be defensible either, but it's not like they were in office trying to do some nice things for people so they could like come to Britain and... Uh, live and their then lives. the sun noticed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they reacted. I mean, obviously there was an atmosphere preceding them coming in that I assume played into the way that they thought about this, but they didn't even try mm. to fight it. Like there was no, there was no kind of attempt to resist it. And so you have New Labour coming in and almost immediately you're like, asylum is a problem, bogus asylum seekers, oh, genuine refugees, crackdown, crackdown, crackdown. And so they did lots of different things. One is they introduced things like what is the a policy that's called the dispersal policy. So people, mm. when they're waiting on their asylum claim, they're just sent to different parts of the country and they have to live in that part of the country and you have no say around that. And they're sent to poorer parts of the country. Poorer well. parts of the country, yeah. So I, I like, like I said, I'm, I grew up in Newcastle and when I was doing the research for the book, I went to Newcastle and like spoke to some people about about exactly this and they said, yeah, they, they, they send people to like, not only one of the poorest parts of the country, which is the Northeast, um, but also then they're put in really poor areas mm. within, like, within Newcastle. So it's like, you know, just leaving people and almost like they're trying to create resentment, right? As they're, as they're saying all this stuff about, oh, asylum, we're being overrun by people seeking asylum. So there's kind of double layer to that there. They did things like stop the right to work whilst you're waiting on your asylum claim, mm. meaning that people have to rely on state support, which is now uh, just less than £40 a week. Um, or they're like forced into the unregulated grey economy because who can survive on 40 quid a week? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they just, they really tried to amp up this this kind of hostility, really played hard into it. The rhetoric was incredibly harsh. They also, as they were doing all of this, scaled back eventually. I think it really like sort of took um, hold in the like, 2000s, 2005 legal age to the mm. point where... Like, again, I've spoken to loads of people who are just like, don't know if I can trust. Like, I'm just paying whoever I can, if I can pay anyone to be my legal representative. Sometimes I can't, so I just have to try and figure this all out by myself. Oh my so there's like, there's some there's some legal aid, but like, so scaled back to the extent that for some people it's just like, they have to navigate this or rely on people who maybe, maybe they can't always um, trust to help them navigate it. So that's one part of this, the reason why this idea that a new Labour just let loads of people in and... Mm. And that's what, why we are where we are now. That's one part. They were really, really anti-asylum. The other part of it is that this idea that people 
didn't like immigration because it was a natural reaction mm -hmm. to too much change. So it's true that New Labour did change, did make changes to the immigration system such that they, they basically wanted people to come in and work. But the thing to say about that is they often wanted people to come in and work for cheap in, they in, introduced temporary working visas. Exactly. And so that this is like the thing that really gets me is like <laughs> they basically it is that that this idea of like moving pieces around on a on a games board like oh we don't want you anymore so we're just going to get rid of you. And so there there are there it's all incredibly complicated because they mm. passed there were a lot of laws passed and a lot of changes made to the immigration system under new labor. It's very very hard to sort of to to map out. Um but one of the things they definitely did is wanting to bring in cheaper labor and they wanted that some of that labor at least to be temporary labor mm. and so for lots of people come to britain work spend loads of money getting here maybe if they had to pay immigration fees then told to leave and so this idea that oh it was, they just let people in and they were really open and kind is a real misunderstanding of what happened but the point about oh people just reacted to, you know people in different parts of the country just reacted to that really badly no, they were living in a country where they were being told all the time mm. that people coming was negative. And so, yes, New Labour did a bit where they were like, economic migration, economic migration, this phrase I hate, is good and we should have that. But they were at the same time being like, asylum's terrible. And so for people, when they're looking at immigration, they're not separating it out in a way <laughs> that kind of is like, oh, well... They're clamping down on asylum, and so this. So they and also they're blurring the the category themselves. So yeah. it's not just like asylum bad, economic migration good. It's also there are bogus asylum yeah, seekers exactly. who are really motivated by economic means. So then it's like, so what's the difference between the bogus asylum seeker motivated by economic means and just like, you know, regular degular economic migrant? Yeah. What's What's the difference here? Yeah, and I and I think that. You know, I'm not one for like privileging one category of person over another. These are like, le like I mean, they're not always legal, rooted mm. in law, but they are like created categories. They're categories politicians and sometimes law create. And like people are way more than that. They're not mm. just, it's not like, oh, these people are fine and these people aren't. So I have an issue with that. But I think that one of the things that they did do is they, they created the hostility. And for most people... They, there isn't necessarily a distinction. It's like, oh, there's either too many people in the country or there's not. And if you're telling us there is in in relation to asylum, then we're going to be worried about immigration generally. And so this idea that it's always a natural reaction to too much change is like, do we live in a bubble? <laughs> and it has has there not been like 50 years of 60 years of this? Um, and so that is something that is really widely believed in relation to uh, Brexit in relation mm. to the rise in anti-immigration sentiment in the years uh, during and then after New Labour. And the final thing to say, I could talk about New Labour for the rest of my life because <laughs> I've thought about it a lot. But the final thing to say is that, that was the, this idea that they welcomed in people who were going to work, um, not only was there this like temporariness to it and this kind of real extractive idea of like exploitative idea of like we want you if you can do certain things for us like that's a terrible mm. way to treat people um that didn't remain e either i don't know if anyone can remember gordon brown british yeah. jobs british workers like they ended up responding hard and going in when there was major economic problems in the country in parts of the global financial crash and responding to like falling vote share and mm. tory messaging they were like oh actually Maybe we want to change our message on this now and maybe we want to change. And they did things like, for anyone who 
believes that Britain needs a points-based system. New Labour already introduced one in the 2000s. And that is like, that, that's so been lost in like I mean, the, it's, co- it's, the current debate. It's so debate. funny that you talk about the Gordon Brown thing because it's literally the embodiment of that drill tweet, which is like turning a big dial that says racism <laughs> and looking over my shoulder for the audience's approval like a contestant on The Price is Right. Yeah, and the, the thing about that is the everyone always talks about that not everyone my twitter feed which is very niche <laughs> these issues um my twitter feed is just radical academics and football that's it <laughs> yeah. mine is just like all the discourse around immigration and i i've seen people you know people talk about the the gillian duffy moment so mm. this is when gordon brown was meeting a voter um and uh during the election campaign and didn't realize his mic was left on and called her a bigoted woman, right? Because she'd said, oh, you know, I, I mean, I can't remember who These Eastern Europeans, where are Thank they you. all flocking from? There you go. Eastern Europe, I imagine. Um, and everyone's like, oh, you know, you know, he was just saying what everyone thought or what he, there's a kind of defense of him. Of mm. Like, oh, but he was, he was treated so badly for saying the thing that he, that he said it behind, I mean, I'm not yeah. really, I don't really think calling her a bigot does that much for us. Like, what does it change about, all the laws you've ha- mm. you've been part of and all the rhetoric you've just stood by and sort of watched. So, okay, calling her a bigot, is it, does it achieve that much? But even if you want to call her a bigot, you said it when you thought no one but your age could hear you. Like, that's not some kind of win. Like, the, the win, the, the positive thing would be for him to have... Not Say it said, to her face. yeah. Well, not said British jobs, British workers. Yeah. Like, that's, I'm not even, Gillian Duffy, whatever. Like, the thing is, the campaign you were part of the thing is all the things that tony blair had been saying in the years up to that that would have been the brave stand to take that would have been the progressive stand to take but instead he just went along like they were pandering to it the whole Mm. time that doesn't how is that a win for anyone but i guess they think themselves electorally i mean i want to talk about race and migration and anti-immigrant sentiment because one of the things that you mentioned earlier was a quote from i think it was the 2004 five Tory election campaign oh yeah where you had these big billboards everywhere which said it's not racist to have concerns about immigration and then the tagline underneath was are you thinking what we're thinking mm. and so what what I thought was like a kind of masterclass of communication is that one it makes people who hold the same opinion as the establishment feel like they're actually a persecuted minority like everyone's going to think I'm racist if I think this thing, which I'm reading every day in the newspaper and that all the politicians are saying as well. And two, it's sort of trying to neutralise any accusation of racism or any connection being made between anti-immigration sentiment and and race. So so how does race and anti-immigration sentiment work together? Because you've got lots of people on the left and the right who say these are different things. Yeah, I mean, no, they're intertwined. (laughs) And they're intertwined historically, right? It's all the stuff that... We've already talked about in relation to like which groups are seen as a threat, which groups are seen as undesirable. But I think the so it's, it is multi-layered. So one, you have this idea that even if you were born in Britain, you're a British citizen. If you are racially othered, if you that is that your belonging is not guaranteed, mm. right? So there's a reason why. At, right in the aftermath of the Brexit, ref, the EU referendum, um, it was not. You know, it was people who were people of colour who were being 
also racially abused mm. in the street, right? That, that, that because And I couldn't wave around my British passport being like, uh, excuse yeah, me, that's... I think you'll find when you say go home, it's Ponder's End. Like. <laughs> yeah, and so that's, that. there is this idea of like, you know, who belongs to the nation and who doesn't. And that that is really shifting contingent. You can be told you don't belong at all different kinds of moments, right? But then there is also this related to your nationality and your class as well as how you are racialized so one of the things to say about this is that if you're really rich it's quite easy to sort of move around the world it's quite easy to come to britain if you can give enough money to the british state like through an investor's visa then you're kind of you're kind of fine you Mm. might experience i'm not saying you don't experience depending on if you're flying on a private jet or not um you don't experience like being racialized at airports but that there is a but it's like it's like what i call oprah racism when she's like i went to a department store and they thought that i couldn't afford the most expensive handbag and i'm like okay it is bad you're being judged on your race but perspective yeah and so that 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 really tells us like there is something the, about the way that race immigration nationality and class and i know it's a lot to sort of to to understand is working together, but these things do work together. Mm. In that, if you um, don't have enough money uh, in your bank account, or if you don't earn enough, or you're not promised to earn enough money, you basically can't come to Britain, right? And that is obviously going to be part harder for people from parts of the world that have been historically drained of their resources mm. by the British Empire. So we have that legacy, but there is also a. a a racialized aspect to the way that people who you might think of as coded are white is so mm. people who like look whose skin color you would mm. consider to be white who sometimes can be considered not quite white mm. right and that's why we have this all this idea around people from Albania people from Poland people from Romania like underlying that is this kind of is this othering mm. that does especially you know for some of those groups now that we've left the EU like then shapes your ability to move, mm. right? And how you're seen when you get somewhere if you if you're gonna if you're gonna work somewhere. So is it is really complicated the way that race functions, but that's because it changes, it shifts. And so you do have some of these sort of continuous, mm. depressingly continuous forms of racism that people are experiencing. But in relation to immigration law, this is also shifting in terms of like who's allowed into a country at a particular point and who isn't. And obviously relates to how much money you have and your skills Mm. and that's why this idea of like the points-based system is a terrible one because it is defining your worth basically on all different manner of things whether that's your education whether that is like your ability to speak English and the final thing to say about uh race I think on this is that that this idea that different passports will get you into different places. Mm. I mean, that plays plays a role, right? In mm. in terms of how easy it is for people who are from parts of the world that would be considered like racial others or places that would be considered dangerous or undesirable. That plays a role into how, in terms mm. of how easy it is for people to come here, live here, work here, settle here. Like that all has an impact on people's ability to move. I mean, also in terms of how these connections are being made between race and immigration and nationality, you see it with the great replacement conspiracy theory, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that, you know, helped along by international financial elites who are basically a code for Jewish people. Um, There's been a great conspiracy to replace white electorates Mm. with immigrants who are more likely Mm. to vote for progressive left-wing liberal parties and also will 
drive demographic change so that there's greater racial diversity and white people become a minority. That's pretty much the potted great replacement history. Like that's the best I can do. Um, and it's, it's a way of going, well, hang on. I know that we've been saying, hey, there's no connection between race and immigration, but actually there is. And we're going to make that explicit now that we want white people to feel threatened on two fronts. And there was an article that I read in The Spectator by Lionel Shriver, who oh, wrote, yes. we need to talk about Kevin. Um, and it was the most duplicitous piece of writing I'd ever seen in my life. So it wasn't just that it was racist. Obviously it was racist. But it starts by going, do you want London to be filled with Americans mm. like me? And I was like, I don't want London to be filled with anyone like you, thanks. Um, but it starts with going... You know, Britain is a culture which is distinct and it needs to be preserved. Mm. So, you know, hey, even white migrants like me, you don't want too many of us. But then it talks exclusively about migration and how that impacts British-born children. So half of British-born children being born to a, a parent who comes from a different country. Um and then it talks about race. So white people becoming mm. a minority in their mm. homeland, mm. that they're surrendering their, you know, their cultural and territorial inheritance uh, without a shot being fired. Those mm. were her words. And uh, she said that it's biologically unnatural for this to happen. And not to sound like a big wet lib, but this is one area where I kind of am a bit of a wet lib, is... One of the stories of the past 50 years is greater racial diversity, not just because of immigration, but because of how people are forming families and how people are falling in love and making a life for themselves. And we often think about mixed heritage just being about white parent, non-white parent. But actually, there's really wonderful forms of mixed heritage families where it's one parent who's from West Africa, one parent who's from the Caribbean. Um, just thinking about my own friendship group, you've got, you know, couples who are Pakistani and Turkish, couples who are Jewish and Somali, couples yeah. who are Irish and who are black. There's all sorts of ways in which people are interacting. And for this article to do that work of going okay no we're just talking about that nationality there's nothing about race mm. and nationality to suddenly like white people take up arms and like you know deal with the you know rising tide of brown babies i just thought was like well well here it is like this is what you guys think this is what you yeah. guys are after yeah and i mean we we like not to harp on about uh, Brexit, I like sort of feel that like too much. I like never want to think about the referendum again. But <laughs> that, if that didn't show you like exactly what work race was doing, then I don't know what does because that was about people who uh, are Muslims mm. or believed to be. Mm. That's what that was about. Like all the those those leaflets about people coming from Turkey, like mm. you know, like that was all about who the threat is and who is culturally distinct and who is going to dilute British culture. Like that was that to like, that if you ever needed a perfect case study, like a depressingly perfect case study about how race and immigration are working together in British political discourse, that was it. Mm. And that seems to have just been like, because you know, the Remain campaign, this isn't just about, oh, the Leave campaign was terrible. Mm. The Remain campaign was, uh, the like, partly headed by David Cameron who <laughs> spent all that time being like oh yeah we were, oh, we don't want people from that part of the world like he, it's not like the it's not like the political establishment was deeply divided about people from Turkey supposedly being a threat 
No, there was like, there was largely agreement about that. And that really tells us exactly how what the British public are being told about who to watch out for and who's mm. gonna who's gonna be dangerous. And I often I do also think about this uh just how much of a miss sell it can be for what's actually going on in the country. And Paul Gilroy, who's an academic at UCL, he talks just about the Don. <laughs> I'm sorry, like I mean, Sir Paul, Paul Gilroy. <laughs> I know he's not had a knighthood and he probably wouldn't accept it, but he is Sir Paul Gilroy. <laughs> right? Like he he years ago talked about conviviality, which is this idea that people are like are getting along across these supposed um, insurmountable barriers that mm. the, the, the British politicians tell us like, oh, you're not going to be able to like fall in love with someone who's from a different culture from your own. Like whatever that means. Like, I'm like, like, I don't know who What do you mean? You. People bang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you will never stop them banging. It's like, you know, death, taxes and banging. Those are the three inevitable things. I mean, I just like the... That none of that erases like the real racism in Britain mm. and like ha- the the kinds of abuse that people can experience. It's not like oh we're all just getting along fine. Actually, stop stop ruining this for us. Like it is more complicated than that. Mm. But it this idea that people cannot like there is an inherent difference that is, you just cannot overcome is so painfully untrue. But I also just want to sit everyone down <laughs> and be like. What do you mean by culture? Because, and again, like just to Stuart Hall is the is also like the the person to look to for this because he wrote it all basically for us in the seventies and eighties. And it's also mega readable. Like, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, one of the things I love about Stuart Hall. Well, yeah, because this quote is is like my favorite, which is, and I'm going to butcher it, but the, the quote is like, "What does anyone know about a English person except they can't get through the day without a cup of tea?" Where are the tea plantations in England? There are none. Like they are, they are in India, Sri Lanka. That is the outside history. That is mm. inside the history of the English. And for me, I always am like, so you, this culture, this culture that you feel like is being diluted. Like, tell us about it. Like, where? Like, what? What is it? And not only is it, oh yes, Britain had an empire, and obviously was inf- like influenced and influenced other places. Was influenced by and then influenced other places. But like this idea that there's like this static mm. thing about what it is to be born in a particular country and what that makes you is just so doesn't make any sense to me. When I think about like the people I went to school with, we were all born in the same mm. city. We do not have the same like we don't all do the same things and have the same beliefs and abide by the same sort of cultural rules as, as one another. Like we're all different. Mm. So what is it? Like, yeah, okay, maybe there's some things you could say that are British, but like does that stay is that static? But it's also just like a, a matter of time of like what gets assimilated and naturalized as British culture and what doesn't and what can be and what can't be. And I was thinking about this in relation to like one of my best mates is Irish and she only holds an Irish passport. She doesn't have a British passport. Whereas, you know, I only have a British passport and sometimes again we like to play a spot the immigrant because no one ever picks her. And there will also be a difference in like yeah, if we both have children and, you know, those children have children, um, is that, you know, any any kid I have, regardless of who the dad is, is going to have dark skin. Hers won't be. Where, and her children, despite having immigration, you know, kind of closer to them in a, in a generational sense, will be automatically inducted into Britishness. And of course, you're Indigenous Brit and you deserve to be here in a way that mine won't. And it will take that greater period of time as like you know they make a journey perhaps into whiteness for Mm. them to then be considered a natural or you know authentic 
belonging component of the British body politic. And I just think about that a lot in terms of when people think about the border and the border being natural. And what what the border is, is status for, for people as much as it is, you know, status for territory. And I think about, you know, the fact that there will be no real difference between, you know, my kids and, you know, one of my colleagues' kids, you know, who who's white in a passport sense a national sense Mm. but in Mm. that sense of like who do you think really belongs what's native what's indigenous and how do we construct those categories massive difference yeah so i've got one last question for you if you could design government immigration policy and it be implemented Mm. tomorrow yeah what would it look like I hate this question. <laughs> no one wants my real answer. Um, I mean, so if I had we to... want your real answer. So if I, ha- if I had to accept, like, that things there was going to be an immigration system, if I have to accept there was going to be a state, there's, like, so many things. And this is, like, off the basis of speaking with loads of people who have moved through that immigration system. There's loads of things that, you know, if we got a Labour government, for instance, I mean, they are in a very bad place on this at the, at the moment, and I don't hold out much hope. If, you know, they were going to try and do something good, they could do immediate things, like reducing fees for the immigration system none of this is like sounds fun Mm. but is necessary reducing the administrative hurdles not making it so that we have a points-based system so that it's just about the needs of the economy making it so that when people come here it doesn't cost millions of pounds or thousands of pounds to renew their status and it's not so hard for them to get british citizenship if they want it and if they don't Mm. they shouldn't be treated like their conditions their paying conditions shouldn't be worse one of the things that is really not a positive thing about the way our immigration system functions aside from the whole thing is that lots of people are that you have to get sponsored by your employer and then you're tied to your employer and it's very difficult to move to another employer it's it's like having like a bureaucratic version of like the kafala system like baked into immigration i mean really um yeah i mean like it is not it's not a it's not a fair or a just way to treat anyone Obviously, for me, I want to be moving towards a world in which we are undoing the way that the need for these kinds of bordering policies at all. Because, as I said, you're always going to filter some people out and you're always going to admit some people on the basis of what you want and need. But there are steps, I think, that we can take um, to get us to get us to a more just world. Um, because I realised getting there overnight is like, I mean, I'm not going to live to see it, basically. Um, but there are things that the British the British government or a British government could do tomorrow to make life much better for people. Um, and that doesn't even, you know, we haven't even got to the asylum system yet where so much could be done to make to make people's lives much easier. Do you think there's any country that gets it right or gets it more right or that we could model ourselves on? You know, I thought a lot about that. <laughs> um, a lot of people look to Canada because Canada, uh, like, I think Justin Trudeau did a tweet the other day where he was like, you know, we've welcomed in 400,000 people. But, and I'm just going to, it's like, no was, I guess, the answer I should have started with. I find it really, it's really hard to find anywhere that I think is like, uh, is comparable to Britain in terms of like, um, the way our politics works. Um, because the thing about Canada, the reason why Canada is a bit of a, is not so great is like there's lots of people who've done work on this is like is people are also then having to work in very exploitative jobs if mm. they are coming in say, claiming asylum like working in abattoirs really dangerous places um and it is this idea of like come if we can use you mm. so it's not like such a positive response i think this is because like i said the british britain is in a web with other countries and the bordering regime 
globally mm. doesn't treat people well. I mean, do you think maybe a good rule of thumb would be like, treat your poorest migrant the same way you treat your richest one? Yeah, absolutely. That's like, they're never going to do that. Like they're, 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 as they conceive the border now, they're, they're not going to do that. Um, but yeah, the idea that, like, I guess one of the things that I, one of the things that I learned when I, th- through all the years of researching this, is I did think, when I started out on this, when I was sitting listening to that Ed Miliband speech, I was probably someone who thought, oh, you know, if someone like works really hard, like we should be saying that people are contributing to the economy and we shouldn't mm. be saying that people are bad for um, wages or whatever it is because that's all a missell. I now believe that, okay, maybe that can be a starting point for persuading people. That is not a good end point because mm. if we're going to measure people's right to move and their worth on what they contribute in terms of pounds, then we're never going to treat them like people. And during the like height of the pandemic, when everyone was talking about, you know, lots of key workers are, are migrants and there have been some changes made around, around uh, like doctors and nurses, people mm-hmm. who work in the healthcare um, profession who now don't have to pay a particular charge uh, that all other migrants still have to or most other migrants still have to. I thought, oh, maybe that could be like a starting point for mm. shifting the debate. And I still think that that can be a starting point, but like it's too often an end point. And I do think, yes, let's recognize the, the work that people are doing. Like, I've spoken to loads of people who are like, I don't, I work really hard. This idea that I'm coming to Britain mm. to take and like that I'm just uh, coming to use the NHS. Like I work three jobs and we need to recognize mm. what people are doing. I think that that is important. But there's always going to be someone outside of that who's seen it. Like, there's always going to be the person who isn't the key worker, like, who isn't the Mm. migrant that you want. Um, And so I I just don't think that that is a good end point for treating people um, in in, in a nice way. And so I suppose for me, like, if there's going to be a principle for thinking about movement in the world, like, I want to live in a world where everyone has the right to stay if they Mm. want. You shouldn't have to leave your home because of, like flooding Mm. or because of there's no opportunities for you to like work or live but everyone should have the right to move to no matter Mm. who they are if they want to and that for me is like it's not just the part that is about saying everyone should have the right to move the right to stay is like a fundamental part of Mm. what a just world would look like and if we could start from that as a principle Mm. then i would be very happy oh maya good fellow thank you so much for joining us thank you Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.